0: Uh, This is not for an object lesson today, by the way. (laughs) Apparently, there's a leak. Uh, Kids ages four to six are welcome to join Kyle and Kelly over here. What are you guys studying this morning? God created the world. Starting over again, huh? Okay, awesome. Great. Uh, Also, this has been baby week here at Redeemer. I don't know if you knew that or not. So on Tuesday... Ivy was born to Jeff and Gretchen, right? And then I don't know if you remember Dustin and Mary. Uh, they had their baby Finn on Wednesday. And then yesterday, uh, Jamie and Joe had Piper. So that's exciting. And then Spencer's brand new. So he's here too. So we're, we're growing a lot. And so in terms of legacy, this is happening just biologically. So, <laughs> you know, let's keep that in mind and let's pray about that heavily as we think about spiritually what it means to leave a legacy. Um, Let's, let's pray for our time, and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you that we can come together to worship you. We thank you that you uh, have brought us together to be a part of this church, to, um, to remind one another of gospel truth, uh, to invest in one another, to aid in one another's discipleship and growth in Christ, whether that be our children who are upstairs and, Learning about creation, or the children that are just born to us this week, and we are trying to raise them in our homes, uh, train them up in the way that they should go. Or here, as we invest in one another, making disciples of all nations, as we encourage, as we build up, as we teach, and instruct, and correct, and reprove. Lord, what we're doing here. We know matters. We know that you have called us to this. That this is not just a formality. This is not just something we do every week. But what we're doing this week and through the week and every day is leading up to something far, far greater. And Lord, I pray that we would see the beauty in that, that we would see the purpose in that, that it would change the way we think and the way we act throughout even the day because we know that there's more to life than just consuming and dying. And so, Lord, I pray that as we reflect upon your word, our hearts would change. I pray that we would see with new eyes through your word. And in light of that, we would desire to live differently and leave a godly and lasting legacy. Do that as individuals and do that as a church. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. It's page 531 in the Bibles provided there in the chairs. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. I'm gonna do something a little abnormal for me. I'm actually gonna start out by reading the text. So if you would, uh, turn your attention there. Proverbs chapter six, verses 20 through 23 reads, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you wake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. You know, in many ways, this passage summarizes a sermon that actually began two weeks ago, and I'm going to finish today, on what it means uh, to leave a legacy, Proverbs is all about leaving a legacy. Proverbs, in and of itself, is a legacy of, of one generation commending God's wisdom to another. Now, I reminded us last week that legacy is unavoidable. It is something that we, you will do automatically, whether you mean to or not, whether you do it for good or for ill. Right? We do it at work, we do it in our neighborhood, we do it in the church, and we most certainly do it at home. In fact, When you think about it, just over the course of time, there would be no human race apart from legacy. As much as we would like to think that we are self-sufficient, independent individuals that can get by just fine on our own, being able to go through life just uninfluenced and not influencing others around us, the truth couldn't be farther from that. We are born needy. We're born in need of relationships, of love and care. I mean, we can't survive in the world without it. Imagine if Piper or if Ivy or if Finn or if Spencer didn't have parents. Where would they be? We all need teaching and training and instruction in order to navigate in this world if we're gonna live the lives that God intended for us to live, if we're actually gonna live well in this world. I mean, where would a child be without it? And when you think about it, as much as we dislike authority and discipline, where would we be apart from it? Godless rebels who live as if this is my world and I'm God. You see, everything about us in one way or another is shaped by someone else, who we are, how we live, and what we will become. In one way, or in many ways, is formed, is shaped, is corrected by the influence of other people in our lives family, friends, culture, God. I mean, think about those who raised you. I mean, not only could you not survive apart from their care for you, but they have also helped to serve to mold and to shape your heart. The truth is we need their formative and their corrective discipline in our lives if we are gonna truly live life to its fullest, to live the lives that God created us to live. That is the way that God made us as a people. But verse 23 adds, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Now what that tells us is that apart from Uh, is that there is no direction for life apart from the commandment, that there is no light apart from teaching, and there is no way to life apart from the reproofs of discipline. You see, we need them if we're to live well, if we're to live lives of eternal blessing in the presence of God. And where do we receive them from? Well, obviously we receive them from God and his word, but where else? From one generation, Caring for and commending God's word to another in the home and in Christ's church. And that's the way it has gone on and on and on from the very creation of Adam until the return of Christ. God's wisdom being passed down from one generation to another through command, through teaching, through the reproofs of discipline in order to impart love and blessing and grace and life that's the heritage of wisdom. That's the godly legacy that true wisdom leaves. And so regardless of who you are, you will leave some kind of legacy behind. It doesn't matter how young or old, whether you're single or married, whether you have children or not, because this cycle of one generation to another, it's continuing. You notice that? We're a part of it. Like it or not, we're a part of it. It will continue even beyond us. And so what that means is you will leave a legacy. You will have an impact in some way or another, either for good or for ill, whether you mean to or not. That's just the reality that we've been given. Leaving a legacy is unavoidable. Even in our attempts to isolate ourselves, to to separate, remove ourselves, to try to really not influence you and not be influenced by you, you can't help but leave an impact. Legacy is unavoidable. So the question is, regardless of who you are, what kind of legacy will you leave? Now, contrary to the sentiments of our culture, God did not place you on this earth so that you can consume, so that you can take and then die. God created us to be fruitful and to multiply. And we just know this intuitively, right? I mean, have you ever noticed how children have this unusual tendency to grow up and then become parents? It happens. Or how those who do not know Christ become disciples of Christ and then are called to make disciples for Christ. That Christianity is not hereditary. It's not just something that you're born into. But that all of those who are currently Or will ever make disciples for Christ were at one point not disciples of Christ. And yet here they are striving to leave a godly legacy behind. Because friends, that is the privilege and joyful responsibility that God has called us all to, whether in our homes or in this church. And that's why Proverbs calls us to as well. True wisdom leaves a godly legacy. And so two weeks ago, I began By exploring the formative aspects of leaving a godly legacy behind that we see through the book of Proverbs, that we are to receive God's wisdom, but then we receive it for what purpose? To diligently teach it to our children and others, right? It's meant to go through and out, right? Not just stay right here in our heads. And second, we must also obey and model wisdom for our children and others. Because what good is a body of doctrine? What good is is teaching and instruction that does not change our lives? And why on earth should they listen? Why on earth should they do what we ask them to if we do not faithfully do it ourselves? And So let me just say this. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that sermon, I'd really encourage you to go to our website or go to our podcast and check that out. I think you're going to really be helped by it. And though all of Proverbs really pertains to this, like every single sermon in some ways is connected uh, to this idea of leaving a legacy, there are two others in this series on Proverbs that I'd really recommend. One is chapter one, verses eight through 19 the beauty of wisdom and enticements against it. I deal with things in that text that I can't deal with here. I'm addressing worldview issues and who influences us. I talk to parents, I talk to children. It's, it's gonna add a lot to this. And then also in chapter four, uh, there's a perseverance of heart and a heritage of wisdom. And in that, we just talk about the, the benefits of, of recognizing this heritage of wisdom and how it guards, guides our foot and guards our hearts. So both of those sermons add to this concept of, or this theme of legacy. And so now that we've kind of covered those formative aspects of leaving a wise and godly legacy by receiving and teaching wisdom and obeying and modeling wisdom, this morning, I want to turn our attention to the corrective aspects of leaving a godly legacy, to, be, to train and to be disciplined by wisdom and to rejoice and make glad in wisdom. By doing these, we leave a godly legacy. And so first, train and be disciplined by wisdom. Look again there at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. This is the wise King Solomon, wisest man on the earth apart from Christ, and he's pleading with us as a loving father. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. I mean, what an earnest plea from a father to his children. I mean, do you notice the urgency in his voice? Now, We can kind of relate to that, right? I mean, as parents, we want to be there for our kids. We want to hold their hands and guide them. We we strive diligently to watch over and to protect them. We want to be for them when they wake to talk with them, though if we're honest, we probably want them to talk a little bit less when they're young and maybe a little bit more when they're older. But nevertheless, we want to be there to talk with them. And we do this because we love them. We care for them. We want to take care of them. And that's a good thing. But often, we go too far as parents. And rather than teaching our children wisdom, helping them to learn what it means to navigate in this world, to be able to stand on their own two feet and live in the fear of the Lord, what we do is, in in hovering over them, we enable them to remain as fools. Rather than teaching our children wisdom, we, we take these approaches like, It's like like maybe you've seen in schools, right? It's not uncommon in schools these days to see parents like arguing for the grades of their kids, even into college. I've I've heard stories of parents that want to sit in on job interviews. Grown children. And their parents are wanting to be there at job interviews. Parents that are so afraid of their children getting hurt that their children actually grow up thinking that they can't do things that they actually can do. With just a little bit of practice, with a little bit of coordination, and maybe with a few scraped knees, I remember working at the Y uh, one time, and uh, there was this boy. He was about six or seven years old, and his mom let let him out of his cage, and he got to come to the Y. It was the afternoon, no one was in there, and this kid it was like it was like a puppy off of a leash. He was everywhere, running around all excited like he'd never seen anything in the world before. And this was, his eyes were now open to it. And as he was running from one place to another, his mom was running right behind him with her arms outstretched in this guarded position. I kid you not. Everywhere this kid went, she was right behind him. He went to take a drink out of the water fountain. He stepped up on the step stool, and she ran over there and grabbed hold of him and held him like he was a two-year-old, like she needed to lift him up so that he could take a drink. He was playing basketball. I don't know where he was attempting to play basketball on the basketball court, right? He took a shot, it bounced off the rim, came back and beamed him in the head and she gasped so loud that I thought she had a heart attack. (laughs) Needless to say, I do not think that organized sports are in this kid's future. Now, we can laugh at such extremes, but we all have a tendency to hover over our children out of our own foolishness, out of our own fear, out of our own distrust in the Lord, here's how we practically reinterpret this passage. My son, keep me and forsake not your mother. Bind us to your heart always. Tie us around your neck. When you walk, we will lead you. When you lie down, we will watch over you. When you wake, we will talk with you. For we are your lamp and we are your light and we are the way of life. When we hover over our children like that, what we're doing is we're we're trying to be their functional saviors. We're trying to play God. We're trying to teach them to depend upon us for everything rather than teaching them what it means to depend upon the Lord. And the legacy that we leave when we do that is not one of wisdom, but of foolishness. Not a fear of the Lord, but a fear of everything else. Not a trust in the Lord, but a misplaced trust in ourselves and a distrust of everyone and everything else. The reason why Solomon is earnestly calling his son to keep his command and forsake not his mother's teaching, the reason why he pleads so urgently with him to bind this on his heart and tie this around his neck is because he knows that he cannot and he should not always be right there with him. He knows that his son will have to stand on his own. And so he must prepare him for that, to train him to be wise, to be a man who knows and loves and fears the Lord above all else. You cannot always be there for your children, but if you are diligent to train them up and discipline them with wisdom, They will have exactly what they need. They will have exactly what God wants them to have at all times, when they walk, when they lie down, and when they wake. God's wisdom, not you, will be a lamp and a light and the way of life for them. You see, God didn't call you, nor does God want you to do it for them, He calls you and he wants you to train them up and to discipline them with his wisdom so that they can stand on their own two feet and to do that for the glory of God. And a necessary part of God's plan for us to grow in wisdom and to know how to stand on our own two feet is discipline. He says the commandment is a lamp. The teaching, and that's the same word for the law, Torah is a light And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. You see, apart from God's wisdom, we're lost in confusion, darkness, and death. And that's not what we want to impart to our children. No, we want to give them a lamp. We want to give them a light. We want to train them to follow the way of life. And that can't happen apart from command, apart from teaching, apart from the reproofs or the corrections that come from discipline. And that's true for all of us, right? That's true for us who are given the responsibility to train up our children in the way that they should go. That's true for us as a church. And that's true for the way we discipline or train up our children to follow Christ. Think about the alternative from Proverbs. Think about the alternative to not viewing command as as, a lamp and teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline as the way of life. In chapter 5, just one page back, verses 7 through 14, Solomon warns his son against the dangers of sexual immorality, something that we can all pretty much relate to. And it says, "'And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth.' Keep your way far from her and do not go near to the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go into the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, when your flesh and body are consumed and you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ears to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Do you hear that groan? Do you hear that lament that comes from one who hated discipline? I am at the brink of utter ruin. Is that what we want to impart to our children? Is that what we want to impart to our church? A few verses later, verses 21 through 23, it says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he is led astray. And so in failing to train and to be disciplined, we lead ourselves and others astray. We allow them to be ensnared in the cords of sin. We give them over to death. Proverbs 13.1, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 15.5, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Proverbs 15.10, there is a severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. He's saying, look, you discipline them in order to help them Avoid the consequence of a more severe discipline that's coming their way. And one of my personal favorites is chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. (laughs) Now, nobody wants to be considered stupid, right? (laughs) Nobody wants somebody to say of your kid, Your kid is as dumb as an ox. (laughs) Now, friends, we must grow in wisdom be disciplined by wisdom and train and discipline others in wisdom because the opposite is not a happy life. It's actually ruin and death. Contrary to the worldview of our culture, we are not disciplined, nor do we discipline because we hate ourselves or others, because we're killjoys, because we're trying to exert some form of dominance over another. We do it because we love. We do it because we want to bless, because we want to give life, because we delight in the one whom we discipline. If you need to see this, look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, page 528. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 reminds us, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. You see, discipline is not born out of hatred, out of violence, out of this attempt to domineer. Discipline is born out of love. The Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father in whom he delights. God's command, God's teaching, God's reproofs of discipline in your life are not an indication that the Lord is somehow against you, but that he delights in you, that he is actually committed to your good, to your best. He wants to see you thrive. And so he disciplines you so that you might find it. And if you ever question that, all you need to do is look at the ultimate act of discipline in the cross of Jesus Christ. Where warnings and reproofs and the rod were unable to cleanse us from our sin and to change our sinful hearts, Christ did what we could not. He bore the punishment that was due for our sins and he rose again so that those who would turn away from their sin and trust in him might be made pure. They are now able to obey. They are able to be trained and disciplined in God's wisdom as children in whom soul God delights. He trains us. He disciplines us, not because he hates us, but the exact opposite, because he loves us, because he gives us, and he gives us the loving responsibility to do the same in the church and in our homes, Friends, think about the alternative. In this life, what does God do with those who have not received his saving love? He gives them over to a debased mind to do it not what ought not to be done. You see, what we call, what, what the world says is loving, let them do whatever they want to do. God says, actually, that's an indication that my saving love is not upon you. You want to know if I'm loving you? I'm going to discipline you. But God is not the only one in scripture that reproves or disciplines. We see it in the church passages like Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians chapter five, and we see it in the home. And both are meant to foreshadow. They're meant to mirror, to reflect and image the greater, the ultimate love and wisdom and discipline and judgment of God. Parents and Christians, we are meant to represent God in, in all of His ways to those who are immature, those who are naive, those who are unknowing, and even to those who are unbelieving. And part of the way that we do that is through discipline. We've been called to train them to see his goodness and his love and his mercy and his grace and his holiness and his justice and his righteousness and his wisdom and his authority. And that's why we're called to discipline our children. It's not hard to see from scripture that God designed part of the training process in the home to include the rod of discipline. Now, I don't know why. God decided in his wisdom and designed the training of, our, of the head and hearts of our children to come up through the rear. But nevertheless, he did, right? And so at times we must apply the board of education to the seed of knowledge. Just in the book of Proverbs alone, you've got chapter 23, verse 24. It's a good place to start. It says, whoever spares the rod hates his son but whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. And so it's not saying if you love your child, you won't do anything about it. It's saying, no, if, if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. If you love him, you're diligent to discipline him. We like to think it's more loving to withhold discipline from our children. It, and, and at times, that can be a way to model grace. When your child knows that they've sinned, that they know that they've committed wrong, right? And, and they know that they deserve Spanking That can be a great way to model grace, right? So at times you can do that. But let's face it, most of the time, the reason why we withhold discipline from them is not because we love them so much, but because we love ourselves more. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want them to think poorly of us. We don't want it to reflect like people to think poorly of us by what we do. And so we love ourselves more than them. And and again, this is not to say we can't use other methods like timeouts, But to neglect what God so clearly calls us to in scripture, we have to recognize is to disobey God and to hate our child. Proverbs 19 verse 18. Discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. To not discipline your children is, is actually to convey a sense of hopelessness towards them. That they cannot change. They will not change. And the means that God, part of the means that God gives us to help them to see that, that won't work either. So you give them over. Can't do anything. But withholding discipline is giving them over to death. Solomon says it's basically we're setting our hearts on signing their death warrant. And why is that? Well, chapter 22, verse 15. Folly And folly being a refusal to make moral choices, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, meaning that's our natural inclination. We're all given over to folly. That's who we are by nature. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And so part of how we learn how to make moral choices, part of how we learn how to grow up to become mature adults that actually contribute to the world rather than of, you know, just live in extended adolescence is through the rod of discipline. Now this is just an observation because in college I studied human development and family studies. Right? So that's just a really fancy way of saying let's take a bunch of different... Uh, soft sciences like psychology and sociology and anthropology and biology and social work and all that, kind of mix them together. But really all you do is just observe people, you know, particularly as they grow and families, right? So that's what I did, a lot of observation. And one of the things that I observed, even in college, you know, way back in the late 90s, early 2000s, if you can believe that, was as the culture grew in a disdain for corporal punishment there also was an increasing trend of what they now call extended adolescence where people are delaying getting married They're just kind of putting off growing up and contributing to society men going and living with their parents in the basement playing video games and watching movies rather than actually contributing getting a job working hard starting a family being diligent those kinds of things friends that is what Proverbs calls folly, a refusal to make moral choices. And so we have that responsibility while they're young to train them up in the way that they should go. Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14 is another one. Uh, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Now, friends, this is not a license for you to beat your children. Nor can this save their souls. You can't save their souls by striking them. This is speaking to those who are afraid to discipline their children. Okay? Though, not to those who in anger are ready to strike out in violence against their children. This is for those who are fearful not for those who are eager to exert their authority over their children. You See, this proverb was meant to be reassuring to those who are afraid, afraid of harming their children and saying, look, you're not going to kill them. And the reason why you're not going to kill them, you're, you're not even going to get close to killing them, right? But what you're actually going to do is you're going to end up sparing them from sin and death. And so that's why you do it. So this is not some license to say, yeah, beat them. Right? The focus is not on this idea of a rod, but on this reassurance that as you're faithful as a parent, you are, you're going to help them to, to know and love God. All right? the, the heart behind this is one of love and compassion and a desire to see them saved and do them no harm. Now, the reason why we often go wrong with this as parents is because we, we have a tendency to discipline our children out of anger we're frustrated, we're disappointed, we're annoyed. We make it about our authority rather than God's. We don't see ourselves as stewards. We try to make ourselves the ultimate authority here. We're focused more on demanding obedience rather than pursuing their hearts. And the goal is to obey me immediately rather than striving to leave a godly legacy. But Proverbs 25, verse 15 says, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. It's the rod and reproof. See, faithful discipline requires that we first receive and teach wisdom. In receiving and teaching wisdom, we can't help but be humbled, And as we grow in humility, we also grow in those fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And all of that comes to bear in the way that we discipline. A discipline that gives grace and and, and imparts life, right? If we're truly receiving and, and teaching godly wisdom, then we will also obey and model God's discipline or God's wisdom as we discipline and so in that, it, our discipline is full of grace, is full of blessing. You see, you cannot faithfully train and disciple our children if those first two formative aspects we talked about two weeks ago are not in place. We have to have those first. When you have those, then you can turn your attention towards this one. The rod and reproof are paired together. The rod all by itself is not enough and it leads easily to Abuse. It's the rod and reproof that go hand in hand. And if we do them faithfully as their parents, then we're first going to be taking the plank out of our own eye so that we can see clearly to take the speck out of our child's eye. God designed us to use the rod because the rod gains their attention. And not only does it gain their attention, but it helps to convey the seriousness of sin right? A, a small foreshadowing of a greater punishment yet to come, but it is the reproof. It's the reproof that, that leads us to love and understanding and life. If that's not the product of our discipline, of when we discipline our children, then we're probably not using the rod correctly. The rod and reproof are meant to reflect the loving heart and the loving hand of God. If you're striking out in vengeance, more than likely it's an indication of how little you still understand of God, that you, you maybe tend to view God as a wrathful judge of our outward behavior, as some vindictive, violent executioner rather than a loving father who teaches and reproves and corrects and trains in righteousness, who focuses on the heart to lead us to him, not to demand our obedience. Again, obedience, I talked about this two weeks ago. Obedience is merely the way that we show from our heart what we love. And that's why God calls us to it. He wants us to be wholehearted. Now, I know that this is a tough topic and people have very strong convictions about it. And so all I could really do for us this morning is encourage us to look at scripture and say that this is not antiquated that God knew what he was doing from the very beginning when he designed it this way. And we see it happening throughout scripture. And even though you might say, well, that's 2,000 years ago. Well, again, God rooted it even in creation. So it goes back a lot further than that. And it's meant to reflect a greater purpose, right? It's meant to reflect what, what God does in and through us. And because he's still doing that today, we know that God's plan hasn't changed. I realize you might have a lot of questions, and so I'm happy to try to answer those uh, you know, after the service. Uh, but I want to point you in the direction of resources. First of all, I want to point you away from one resource, and I want to point you in the direction of a couple of others. I want to point you away from the book Train Up a Child by Matt Pearl. I don't know if you're familiar with the Pearls and the Pearl method of discipline. Uh, it's received a lot of headlines recently. In that uh, over the last three years, or two, three years, something like that, um, there have been parents who have actually killed their children by using the Pearl Method. That's what they point to. Now, let me just say this about, I I can't say everything about the the Pearl Method. I can't say this. It's behavioral rather than heart-focused. It's purely focused on getting your child to obey, not to mold and shape their hearts. For example, he encourages parents to sinfully put their children to the test, actually put some scenario out there to get them to obey. And if they fail, then you meet it with immediate harsh consequences. We're not to put our children to the test. And though perhaps they misunderstood his point, a number of uh, parents have pointed to that book as a justification for why they have abused their children. And that's in no way what I'm talking about when I talk about the rod of discipline. Okay, people can take scripture and twist it and use it in ways that, it has that like, it's not intended to, to convey. It's the purpose behind it. And we've got to be aware of that, right? We've got to be careful about that. It's an abuse of scripture that's focused solely on outward behavior rather than the inward change of a heart. And it does not display the grace of God as a parent should. You see, the rod is a tool of love. It's a tool to convey understanding. It's a tool that's meant for life. It's a means for us to address their heart and to help them turn towards God. The rod must be about God's authority, not our own. And if it's done faithfully, it will reflect the loving heart and hand of God. The pearls method fails to do that. And so instead, I would commend you to a couple of other resources. Now, I could give you tons of them, but I'm just going to point out two. First one is Teach Them Diligently by Lou Priolo. And the second is Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. Both of these resources faithfully convey the wisdom, grace, and discipline of God. It can provide parents with a number of very, very practical strategies to help focus on the heart. Now, let me just address children here for a minute. Kids, God disciplines you because he loves you. And he wants you to live the lives that he created you to live. Lives that are full of blessing and joy and peace and life. Lives that spend eternity with him. Discipline is part of the way that God teaches you how to live within that blessing. To understand and to receive God's love. And so trust him and listen to his voice. Obey him from your heart because he loves you. He cares for you, and he knows what's best for you. He's given you parents that that teach you, that care for you, that want you to come to know and understand and love Jesus. And yes, your parents are sinners. Yes, your parents will make mistakes. But guess what? Even that is an opportunity for both of you to grow in repentance and faith and to learn together what it means to reflect the truth and beauty and love of God. And so knowing that listening to them, obeying their voice, following what they're telling you to do, that's the way that you love and obey God, by loving and obeying your parents. Now, carrying the responsibility of correcting and disciplining another, I mean, when you think about it, is such a weighty task, whether that be in our homes or in the church. But Proverbs 29, 17 offers us a little bit of hope. It says, discipline your son, And he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And so, though we could say a lot more about training and disciplining, uh, this passage leads us to the fourth and final point of this two-part sermon, Rejoice and Make Glad in Wisdom. It says, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. You see, if we're truly going to live, uh, leave a God, godly and wise legacy, if we're going to truly train up our children in the way that they should go, not only must we receive and teach God's wisdom and obey and model God's wisdom and train and be disciplined by God's wisdom, but it also should lead us to rejoicing and making glad in wisdom. The end result of discipline from Proverbs 29 verse 17 is rest and delight. The reason why we discipline, as we saw back in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, is out of love and delight. The goal of discipline is restoration, it's repentance, it's faith, it's life and blessing, and rest and joy and peace. It's not to curb behavior, but the ultimate goal of discipline is to enlighten the mind and delight the heart, to rejoice and make glad in God's wisdom, both for the parent and for the child. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes we fall short of this step. Perhaps it's because we're not really doing much to to train or discipline our children at all. We're not receiving and teaching. We're not obeying and modeling. We're not training and disciplining in that case, Proverbs says that we are fools who are training up the next generation of fools. Proverbs seventeen twenty one says that he who sires a fool gets himself sorrow and the father of a fool has no joy. Elsewhere in Proverbs, we see that a foolish son is a grief and bitterness. He brings ruin, violence, shame and reproach, darkness and destruction, curses and death. But a son who has truly learned and been trained by God's wisdom makes his father glad. So perhaps one of the reasons why you're finding parenting to be a curse, to be a frustration, to be a sorrow, it doesn't lead you to rejoice and make glad in wisdom is because you're neglecting the first three steps of receiving and teaching and obeying and modeling and training and being disciplined. But here's the thing. There's good news is there's hope for change. That no matter who you are or what you've done, we can start anew That we can move forward that we can grow in these things. Over time, as as parents do this, we can still, no matter where we are, leave a godly legacy. And another great news is that our children are surprisingly resilient. I mean, we can mess up a million times over as parents, and yet our children can really turn out great. And that's the grace of God in our lives. But what we don't want to do as parents is, is let that resiliency, let that greatness that we see in our kids be in spite of us, rather than in part because of us. Truly rejoicing and making glad in wisdom is the fruit of faithful parenting. Perhaps another reason why we fail to rejoice and make glad in wisdom is because we focus merely on outward obedience. That we tend to view discipline as a task to get our children to conform their behavior to our desires rather than to help them to rejoice and to make glad in God. Colossians 3 says to children, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord, it blesses him. He rejoices, it makes him glad. But to parents, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Ephesians chapter 6 says children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So saying children as you obey your parents this is a good thing. This is right. This is honoring and it's going to be a blessing. It's going to give life. It's going to be a joy. You're going to be satisfied and may glad in God. But to parents says fathers Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And when we focus on behavior, when we focus merely on outward conformity, we fail to teach our children to hope and to delight and take joy and find gladness in knowing and loving and following Christ. We provoke our children towards anger, towards discouragement. We frustrate them and we falsely teach them that obedience is a matter of begrudging duty rather than a joy-filled delight. Friends, that's a distortion of the gospel. Basically, what we're teaching our kids is obey and then you will be blessed when the gospel says God saves so that you can obey. You're blessed so that you can obey. We can't merely stop at point three. We must prayerfully strive to help them to find their joy and gladness and the grace and mercy of God. That's true wisdom. And when that happens, Proverbs 23 verse 15 says this, my son, if your heart, and notice it doesn't say your outward behavior. It says, my son, your heart. If your heart is wise, wise in God, then my heart too will be glad. Your heart is glad and my heart is glad. That's a great proverb to memorize as parents. Proverbs 23, verse 15, right? My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. Could there be anything greater that we could aspire to for our children than for their hearts to be wise and to be made glad in God? A few verses later in chapter 23, verse 24, it says, The father of the righteous will will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. And we know from the rest of Scripture that true righteousness comes by faith in Christ alone. That through his sacrifice on our behalf, he carries all of our sin and he clothes us in his own righteousness. And through the power of the Holy Spirit who resides in everyone who is truly trusting and following after Christ that he will lead us into all righteousness. Therefore, we can rejoice and we can make glad in this wisdom. We don't want to shortchange our kids. We don't want to frustrate them by trading outward conformity for, and, or the appearance of godliness for helping them to truly find their hearts' gladness in God. And then perhaps one final reason why we may fail to rejoice and make glad in wisdom is because we, as parents, fail to rejoice and be glad in wisdom. Just like we've already seen, we can't truly teach what we've not received. We can't truly model what we don't obey. We can't truly train up and discipline if we ourselves have not been trained nor are disciplined. And we can't lead our children to rejoice in God if we don't find our soul's gladness in him. Does your heart rejoice in God? Does your soul find gladness in him? And do you commend that to others? Friends, leaving a godly legacy begins with our hearts. It starts right here. Do you realize what you've been given in Christ? Do you realize the treasure that you behold, and that even in the difficulties of life, that even in your hardships, and afflictions, even in the midst of pain and suffering, that God is treating you as sons, that he loves you and is committed to your best to lead you to himself, that no matter how hard the lessons come or how challenging it is to obey, no matter how unpleasant it is at the moment, this discipline, there is reason to rejoice and to make glad because God has, is treating you as sons. And when you think about it, Christ himself has taken the punishment that is due for your sin upon himself. What you deserve, he bore. He learned the lessons that you can never learn, lessons of what it means to live in perfect obedience to his father. He obeyed his father to the point of sweating blood and drinking the cup of God's wrath for all of our sin. And he suffered the chastisement of all of God's wrath so that you and I don't have to. How does your hardship, how does the difficulties and challenges and trials in your life compare to a cross? How does it stack up against an eternity in hell? You see, no matter what your affliction is, the truth is it's light and momentary and is welling up to an eternal weight of glory because God, your Father, loves you and is disciplining you as his sons. So there's reason to rejoice. There's reason then, regardless of what your situation, to make glad in God. God is not forsaking you. He's not forgetting you. He's not abandoning you. He's not dismissing you. He's not acting in hostility against you. God is treating you as a son, as his beloved son in whom his soul is well pleased because of Jesus Christ. He loves you. And though the lessons that he's trying to teach you may come hard, it will result in love and blessing and joy and holiness and life. Or as Hebrews 12 puts it, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what the Lord is doing in and for you. It's what he's doing in your life. And that's what he's calling us to do for others, both in our homes and in this church. And that's the kind of legacy that he's calling us all to leave, to receive and to teach wisdom, to obey and model wisdom, to train and be disciplined by wisdom, and to rejoice and make glad in wisdom. And by God's grace, Because we have received the very embodiment of all of his wisdom in Jesus Christ, we can and we will because true wisdom leaves a godly legacy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us. Lord, we know we often don't understand what you're up to. And that at times, we mistake your loving hand of discipline as hatred or abandonment or forgetfulness, when scripture reminds us over and over again that the opposite is true. Father, I pray that we would truly be able to see and delight and take joy in the love that you've shown us in Christ, that because of his sacrifice, we will never have to endure the chastisement that we deserve. But instead, we'll be able to live in eternity in your blessing, in your goodness, in a fullness that we can't even possibly comprehend. And so, Lord, I pray that that would make our hearts glad. And out of the joy that's in our heart, I pray that it would lead us to love you more and more, to want to know you more and more, to to follow you in obedience, to be trained and disciplined, and to be made more and more glad, to rejoice evermore, and to train others to do the same. Lord, that's why we're here. You've placed us on this earth to come to know you and to make you known. So we pray for our children, pray for our community, pray for those whom you will put in our lives even in the future, that we would labor by your grace and by your wisdom to leave a godly legacy for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.